Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Okay, well, Bimber, good to see you guys again. It's uh, a joy to be back. I also forgot to raise this up once again. That's okay. Here we are. Um, yeah, so if you missed it last week, my name is Wes Dixon. I'm the youth pastor from uh, Gateway Church, kind of the church that uh, Bimbrook is uh, connected with. Um, I've been speaking uh, these last few weeks, so last week and this week, and I think the next week as well. Um, Kevin took some time off this week that he was talking about, and he also got some prep time, so that's great. Um, right now, though, in this very moment, we're in the middle of a series called One Page Wonders, where we've been looking all, all through the one-page books of the Bible. Um, these books, as we talked about last week, are small, but they pack a punch. Uh, though they aren't often read, uh, they have important messages for us here today in the right here and now. Uh, this series has been comparing these one-page books to the one-hit wonders in our culture. So we talked about it last week, but come on, I Lean by Dexie's Midnight Runners or Take On Me by Aha. Those are examples of these. There's songs written by bands where uh, the songs that they put out made a huge, huge dent in terms of culture, uh, but the rest of the songs that they ever put out uh, didn't really uh, live up to the hype. Um, in the same way, these books, though small, um, and there isn't much but the message inside of them. Um, they are still massively important for us as we take a look at them uh, today. Last week, we looked at 2 John. We talked about the main message, which was Christian love and the, its relation to the truth. And today, we're going to be continuing on in the series with the shortest book of the Old Testament, and that's called Obadiah. And like 2 John, given how short Obadiah is, um, it too just has one main focus, and the focus is pride. Now, Pride is a word for us that has many different connotations in our culture. That is to say, there's, there's lots of different co contexts that we use it in. Um, I can be proud in the things that I've done, right? Um, I play piano sometimes. If I practice at a piece and I nail it, I might be proud of myself for how I did that. Um, I can be uh, proud of others, parents who are here. You guys might be uh, proud of something that your kid has done. I mean, maybe it's not when your child is having like a temper tantrum in the, the grocery store. That's maybe not the prime moment. But there are good moments as parents, you guys know, right, when your kid scores a goal in hockey when they get an award at school, when they get their first job, maybe when they take their first steps, whatever it is, there are so many things that as a parent, they make you proud of your kids. I mean, as a guy, I can say that there is nothing like hearing from your father that he's proud of you. But there are other ways that we use the word pride. Um, a little while ago, there was Pride Month right? Um, which is a month that is uh, dedicated to the people under the banner of the LGBTQ community, where they celebrate their culture. And whether or not uh, you agree or disagree with Pride Month, I just use it to point it out that it's a different use of the word pride there. It's about celebration. There are the Proud Boys in Canada and North America. This is a group that's been labeled a terrorist organization by Canada. They're associated on the other side of the spectrum, which would be far-right ideology. Um, pride in some of the things that they have pride in has been condemned by the governing authorities. It's a major problem. And so within our culture, there are uh, very positive understandings of pride that we have, and uh, we have others that kind of come off as being more um, contested. Interestingly, our scriptures almost always portray pride as a negative thing. It's almost nearly always condemned in the Bible. Biblically, pride is a bad thing. Have you heard of the seven deadly sins? Would you like to know what the first one is? The Catholic Church presents seven virtues that lead to life and seven sins that lead to death. The very first one is the sin of pride. That's the number one uh, uh, sin for them. Why? Why is it like this? Well, look at the scriptures. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. First uh, John 2, 16. Uh, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Or very straightforward, James writes this. Chapter 4, verse 6, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. And these are just a few examples. There are many, 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 many more in the scriptures that have the same sentiment. Whatever pride is, whatever it is biblically, it is not a very good thing. Uh, in fact, it's something that God opposes. He hates, he detests uh, this idea. Time and time again, the scriptures describe it like that. And so today I wanna ask this very simple question. Why is God so concerned with pride? Why is it such a big deal? And to do this today, we're going to be looking um, at the definition that the Bible provides for pride, um, because like we said, there are good forms of pride, and there are some negative forms, so what kind of pride is the Bible talking about? And then we're going to answer our question today from the book of Obadiah, okay? And so I'm going to open right now, and I'm going to read the whole book, because again, it's that short. It's like a page long. It goes like this. The vision of Obadiah, that is, uh, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy sent uh, to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like eagles and make your nests among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to rob you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force, to you, uh, force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And that day declares the Lord. Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, uh, will be terrified, and everybody in Esau's mountains will be cut down in slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his uh, wealth and, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in their day of trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives, nor hand over the survivors in the day of trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon you and your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israel exiles uh, who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Very cheery, is it not? Very good. I know. I love the minor prophets for that. So let's jump in. And in this series, we always try to read the books because they're so short. So it's good to get a good context, to get a good overview. Um, but let's give you some context as to what's going on here. The book is written by the prophet Obadiah, right? He was given some vision by God according, according to the first couple of verses. Now, Obadiah is a very, very common Hebrew name. There are over 10 of them in the Old Testament. And so we don't actually know much about this Obadiah. He could have been one of the 10 in the Old Testament. He could have been some, uh, some other Obadiah. Um, even the name doesn't give us that much info. The name just means servant of the Lord. 
but that's okay. So we don't know much, but that's okay. We don't need to know exactly who this is to know what's going on here. Uh, the very next line gives us much of the context that we need to understand today, okay? It says this, this vision, this prophecy is about the nation of Edom. Now, you and your seats right now are probably sitting here going, Wes, I don't really know what that means. But if you were an Israelite, okay, and you heard the name Edom, you would know exactly who that's talking about. Uh, you see, Edom was Israel's rival nation. And I mean the word rival very, very literally. Um, Edomites hated Israelites and Israelites hated Edomites. It's like if you ever watched the old sitcom Corner Gas, you know what I'm talking about? Brett Butt, all that fun stuff. If you remember the show, it was about a crew of people who lived in that small town in Dog River. And just down the road, there was a town of Woolerton, and they hated Woolerton. And every time somebody said the name Woolerton, they would on the ground because they hated them that much. This was kind of the spirit of what it was like between the Israelites and the Edomites. They were rivals and they hated each other. And the reason for this goes back centuries, okay? In fact, Edom is actually the national cousin of Israel, technically. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, we get the story uh, at the beginning of Israel, right? You have Abraham. Uh, who was the original patriarch. He was the first. Then he has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You probably heard the three names together. They're all uh, related. Now, in Genesis 25, we have a record of Jacob being born. And if you didn't know, Jacob was born with a twin in the womb. Here's the record of it in Genesis 25, verses 21 and 23. To 23. It goes like this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on the behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your wombs and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now you might be saying, okay, a little harsh God. These are kids not even born yet, kind of in the womb. A little weird that you're doing this, but this is more of a foretelling of what's going to happen. We don't have time to read it, but the rest of the history shows that these two boys are being born. And what happens is that Esau, the older brother, is pulled out first, okay? And the things to note is that he was physically fit and able as a man, okay? But he was careless and he often only thought of himself. And very, very key to note, Esau, when he's pulled out of the womb, was covered in red hair. He had some kind of condition. I'm talking all over his body, just covered, mountain man in red hair. And this would stay into his adulthood. Okay, um, Jacob was the second one pulled out, okay? And he was a quieter boy who preferred to stay at home, uh, but who was very kind of crafty and cunning. And he had smooth skin. He was fair in his complexion compared to his brother. And the story goes on between the two of them, but it kind of hits a climax in Genesis 27, which is the death of Isaac, okay? You see, it was kind of custom in this time that if you were dying, especially if you were dying slowly, kind of like Isaac was, um, more of old age in this context, you would take a moment before you died to actually bless your oldest son. So it was a very biblical thing. This blessing was a spiritual blessing. And in this case specifically, it was the blessing to pass on the covenant that God made to Abraham. So God blesses Abraham and he tells him, I'm gonna make a nation from your uh, offspring. Abraham blesses Isaac in this way. And now Isaac in Genesis 27 has a chance to bless his oldest son. But here's the thing. Isaac was blind at this point in his life. And at the time he wanted to bless Esau, his oldest son, okay? But he was out in the field hunting. And see, Genesis makes it very clear that Esau didn't really have time for family. He was often busy out in the fields. He was a bit of a wild man in that sense. And so Esau didn't really care about inheritance or blessing. He didn't think twice about it. But Jacob was the homebody. He was a 
bit of a trickster, actually, and he desired his brother's inheritance, and fair enough. I mean, like, he was pulled out a second after his brother, so kind of sucks to be in his position. But anyways, he desired his brother's blessing. Um, and so what you have to understand is that um, while Esau was out in the field, Jacob realized that Isaac was calling for Esau. So Jacob shows up at Isaac's tent. And uh, when he walked in, he said, Esau, is that you? And Isaac responded, yeah. Sorry, and Jacob responded, yes. Now, at this point, Isaac's kind of like, "Mm, sounds weird. He's looking for proof. And so he says, Esau, my boy, come close. Let me touch you. If you remember, he was covered in hair. Um, Jacob ends up putting goat's wool around him. And he comes in, and Isaac touches the hair, and he goes, well, it's Esau. And so Isaac, in this moment, gives Jacob Esau's blessing. He tricks his way into receiving Esau's blessing. And you have to understand, this was a binding moment. So it's not like, oh, I can just take this back. No worries, Esau, come in. Once this was done, it was done in the Old Testament. There was no way to take it back. And so I'm sure, as you can imagine, when Esau came back, he was livid. When he found out, he swore to kill Jacob. And so Jacob ran, and the two men went their separate ways. Jacob tricked his way into receiving God's promise of the covenant line upon him. And now eventually these two brothers do reconcile. Esau let the past be the past. But here's the thing, the key to note for our story today. The descendants didn't. They still don't like each other. See, if you remember what I said, Esau was covered in hair, uh, head to toe. Very specifically, the text says that Esau was covered in red hair. Red in Hebrew is pronounced Edom. The Edomites are named after Esau's nickname. People used to call him Red or, he, or Edom. Uh, the Edomites are named after him. And so Jacob then on the other side in this bizarre story in Genesis 32, which again, we don't have that much time to look at it. He wrestles with God, okay? And the nickname he got was the one who wrestles with God, which in Hebrew is Yisrael, Israel. And so now you can kind of put the two together. This story, uh, these are the two stories of how both nations got their names. The nations are the children of Esau and Jacob, Edom and Israel. They are descendants of these two brothers. And so Edom and Israel as a nation had this sibling-like rivalry. They have hated each other since day one. And as time went on, this history wasn't forgotten. Actually, two nations, these two, they warred against each other very often. Israel twice conquers Edom in their history over a couple hundred years. Edom twice revolts against them. And in the 6th century, when the Babylonians attacked Israel, Edom joins in. And that's important for today, but hold on to that because we're going to save it for later, okay? What you need to take from all this, though, is that these two have an incredibly complex relationship. These two nations aren't the biggest nations around at this point. They have a kind of a sibling rivalry between the two of them, and that's because of the history that we have in our Bibles. Now, with this history in mind, let's go back to our scripture. We're going to start walking through it. Again, we're answering the question of why is God so concerned with pride? Why does it matter to him? And the Edomites, as we're going to see, were very, very prideful people. Full prophecy begins in verse 2 with these not-so-kind words as you just heard. He says this, God says this, See, I'm going to make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. So God begins by telling the Edomites that a reckoning is coming. And why? Well, verse 3, he lets in kind of on what's going on. He says this, he says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, the word pride there in Hebrew is zadon. And the word here, which is often translated as pride, is also translated in other passages as arrogance, insolence, presumptuousness. And it's this pride that's deceived them and has brought judgment upon them. And these next verses kind of show what I mean. Obadiah continues. He says this, you who live in the clefts of the rocks 
and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from, here, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, the Edomites, they lived in cliffs. Like Esau, who was an adventurous and kind of a wild person, the Edomites were the, kind of the same way. They lived uh, an adventurous and rough, rough life. They were the survivalists of their time in the ancient world. Now, when it says that they lived in the clefts of the rocks, they actually lived in a, in a very specific place. The, the name is called Selah. You see, the Edomites ended up taking part of what is now modern-day Jordan, just south of the Dead Sea. There's a set of mountains, and the Edomites actually lived in the closest mountains, that, and they made their, their homes in the clefts of the rocks there. Now, this was really beneficial. If you could live up here, it was very hard to be attacked. Nobody could really get you from behind because there were too many mountains. There was just one way of getting to the Edomites, and that was kind of head-on to them. Um, and so this was incredibly, again, beneficial. So the Edomites, in some extent, they actually felt invincible. And the sense that Obadiah gives is that because of this feeling of invincibility, they were prideful. In verse 4, Obadiah mentions as well that they soar like eagles, right? Kind of a weird thing. They make nests among the stars. Um, this is very specific imagery that he's using. Again, to us, we don't really care about this. But for the ancient Near East, this meant a lot. The heavens and the sky, right, as you see in the Bible and other texts, um, they were associated with the divine, right? God is up there. God is in the heavens in some ways. And so to be high, to be above everyone, to sit in the stars or the heavens, to be the eagles that can touch the skies is kind of this claim to divinity. Obadiah is using creative imagery to communicate to us how the Edomites thought of themselves. They believed themselves to be high and mighty, invulnerable and untouchable. They lived in the stars. They were above everybody else. They made themselves, in a sense, to be like gods. They were prideful, meaning that they were confident in their own abilities to the point that they believed they were enough. They believed that they were superior. And so biblical pride, as we can see, is not just pleasure in something or a satisfaction in yourself or something like that, but it's an over-satisfaction. It's an over-confidence. It's an over-estimation of yourself. In essence, pride in biblical terms is the art of raising yourself up. It's the art of honoring yourself. And what Obadiah is saying is that if you raise yourself up high enough, if you consider yourself to be so great, you put yourself in a position that you don't belong. You put yourself where God belongs. In essence, pride of his heart is about putting yourself in the place that God deserves to be. That's what Obadiah is getting at when he talks about the cliffs and the stars. To put it in other words, pride is idolatrous. It takes God's place in our life and puts something else in it. The Heidelberg Catechism, this is old catechism from the Reformation, it defines idolatry as this. It says, look, having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of, or in addition to, the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And when we're prideful, what have we put our trust in instead of God? Us. Ourselves. When we believe ourselves to be invincible, when we believe ourselves to be all we need, then in our minds, we don't need God. We break the first commandment. We have another God outside of the one true God, and that's ourselves. Pride is sinful idolatry, and it's something God actually takes very seriously. But to answer kind of our question today, why does God seem to be so concerned with pride? It's this. It's because it puts us in the place that God deserves to be. He's our creator and our sustainer. He, he made us, and he knows us intimately. He provides for us daily, and so yes, he deserves to be the one we put high above us. He deserves to be the one that we honor, that we think highly of, the one that we love. I mean, 
This is Adam and Eve kind of stuff, if you think about it. This is the garden. This is the serpent saying to Adam and Eve, look, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, what does he say? You will be like God. You will be just like God if you eat of this tree. You see, St. Augustine calls pride the first sin. This is why. He says, man puffed up uh, with pride, obeyed the serpent's prompting, and scorned God's commands. Man puffed up with pride. That's what led them to eat of the tree of good and evil. It's this moment where Adam and Eve took the chance to be just like God. They raised themselves up. It's pride. It's a love and an esteem for ourselves above and beyond what we are. And we as people, look, we do this all the time. Do we not? I mean, how often do you go through your days without even a thought about God? Really, ask yourself that question. How often do we get so preoccupied with our schedules and our concerns that we forget to even pray? You know what that is? That's pride. It's this decision, even a subconscious one, that we're more important than the one that created us. I remember at Tyndale, my fourth year studies got crazy for me. Uh, I, uh, I was at a point where my relationship with God had grown cold. And I mean cold. And the ironic part was that I was studying the Bible. But anyways, what happened was when exams hit, I stopped praying. I stopped reading my Bible. I stopped going to chapels we had. And why did I do this? Because, well, in my head, you know, school, this was a season and God was calling me to the studies I was in. And I, I had to get these done for him. It's very noble, right? But here's the thing. If I was brutally honest with you, the reason I was in this position is because I had procrastinated. And I truly believed myself to be somebody who was capable and able of getting a high GPA. And so I dropped my devos, I dropped prayer, I dropped chapel because I didn't want to look bad in front of my classmates. It was pride. There's nothing else I could lie to myself, but it was pride. This is why Tim Keller calls pride the carbon monoxide of sin. It's this silent killer. We think of pride as more like an outright arrogance, right? All that guy's really arrogant and prideful. But so often, it's just when we put ourselves above God. And we can do that quietly. And so that's why God is incensed by these Edomites. Their pride was actually a reflection of what they thought about him. But let's get back to the Edomites and the story we have here, because it's not really done yet. We've only done a couple verses. So we have, uh, so, uh, we have what God is so upset about right now. It's Edom's pride, right? And now we see in verses 5 to 9 the description of what God's going to do, right? He says, look, if a robber came and stole something from your house or somebody stole grapes from your vineyard, there'd probably be something left. But guess what? Edom, you're going to have nothing left. He knows all the warriors of Edom. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be cut down. And you might be saying, okay, whoa, it's just pride. Like, calm down, God. It's just pride. But here's the thing. God goes on to list the specific actions that he's blaming the Edomites for. You see, in the late 6th century BC, like we talked about earlier, God uses the Babylonians to judge the Israelites, okay? Um, now, this might sound uncomfortable to you. Again, it's weird. It's hard passages to read. But suffice it to say that God gave the Israelites ample time to repent of the sins, and they refused. And the sins they're committing, I'll be honest, weren't just your run-of-the-mill sins. It wasn't uh, just a lie, though lying is not a great thing. It was some big stuff. Think, child sacrifice, widespread political corruption, violence on a mass scale. It was a mess in Israel at this time. And God brought the Babylonians who had been growing steadily in power in as judgment, and they attacked Israel, and they took her off into captivity called the Israelite exile. Uh, while this was happening, Edom apparently wasn't without guilt. Obadiah mentions that all the wrath that's about to be poured out into Edom is because in verse 10, uh, 
the violence against their brother Jacob. In some way, Edom and its people helped Babylon bring Israel into exile. Uh, more than that, verse 11, Obadiah mentioned uh, that on the other side, they're being judged for the ways that they were bystanders. So if they weren't helping, they were just watching. In verse 12, he talks about how they gloated. They reveled in Israel's destruction. Verse 13, he notes how they went into Israel's land after they were taken into exile, and they took whatever they could. And then maybe worst of all, in verse 14, it says that the people who were trying to get away, the survivors, Edomites, came and cut them down or sent them off into Babylon. Now, you might be saying to yourself at this point, okay, get it a little more now. I get why God is upset with this stuff, but the pride stuff, I still don't get how this adds up. That's a lot worse than what pride is. But here's the thing. The two are related. It is not a mistake that Obadiah begins with pride and ends with these, this list of the stuff they did. You see, like I mentioned at the beginning, pride is the first of the seven deadly sins, right? And that's not without reason. It's mentioned a ton in the Bible, for sure. Uh, but more than that, this guy named St. Aquinas, he's this big figure in the church, he notes that pride is the worst sin because it's the source of other sins. C.S. Lewis has this amazing bit in his book, Mere Christianity, where he notes like the very same thing. He says this, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. And chastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of those things, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride leads to every other vice. Consider that statement with me for a moment. Pride leads to every other sin. How is that so? Well, again, understand pride in the biblical sense of raising ourselves up, of putting ourselves in God's place. It's making sure we're superior. And in that sense, we know what right and wrong is. We believe when we're up high, when we're self-sufficient, we believe we know what's best. I mean, again, one more time, back with me to the Adam and Eve story with the serpent and what he said, right? You will be like God. It's the first part. But what does he say after that? Knowing good and evil. You'll be like God because you'll be able to decide for yourself what good and evil is. That, that's it. John Calvin puts it really well when he says, look, man's mind full of pride and boldness dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. You see, when we imagine God according to our own terms, when we sit on that throne, when we out of pride take the spot that God deserves, when we become a judge of what right and wrong is, when we decide what we should or should not do, um, it's an issue. Pride is the underlying sin to all of that because it's the first cause of sin. It's the moment when we say to ourselves what I say goes because I know best. Put it in another way. Pride is the moment when we say not thy will be done, but my will be done. That's what pride is. And so in this way, Edom's actions are not, they're not separate from the pride. They actually stem from it. Talking about Edom's pride wasn't some random intro for Obadiah. It was intentional. This is the source from where these horrible things come from. Attacking a nation like they have after they've been exiled, killing survivors, all of these things are a demonstration of the pride of the Edomites. That they could consider this to be the best choice is a demonstration of their pride. To gain off the backs of the others who have been so oppressed is wildly self-serving, but most of all, wildly prideful. And this is true for us too, is it not? Pride makes us pursue our highest good. It makes us pursue what's best for me, what's best for us rather than what's best for others. 
And in that way, it puts others at risk, right? Because we as humans in our pride, we will naturally choose to serve ourselves. And this is why our second point as to why God is so concerned with pride is because when it's left unchecked, it puts others at risk. And we all know what I'm talking about here. The worst things that we've all done are the things that have hurt the people we love the most. And the things that hurt these people we love always come out of a place of selfishness and pride. And I don't need to list examples. I know you know what I'm talking about. You know the moments in your life when you've hurt people. And almost always, if you're honest with yourself, it's because you've sought your good above another's, whether that's a friend or a spouse or whoever else. It's because deep down, you considered what you were doing, whatever it was, to be worth doing because you gained, even if somebody else lost. It's pride. It's an assumption of your own worth above another's. And so pride, although you might think it's just a you problem, God sees it as a problem for those around you. And the, the, part of the reason he takes issue with that is because he loves those people who are around you. Now, as we close this evening, let's be frank. This has been a bit of a tough conversation. Right? Some kid showing up, preaching to you about pride, yelling at you about sin. I get it. It's, it's a lot. It's not fun to talk about these topics like pride and sin. And you might be saying to yourself, thanks, Wes. That's great. Like, I knew I was bad, but now there's like layers to the onion here. There's layers to how bad things are. I get it. Pride is prevalent in all of us. It's a sin, like I said, that's behind other sins. But I, I want to end on a note of hope. Remember when I said that pride is the moment when we say, not thy will be done, but my will be done. Uh, to put it in simple terms, I think this is the human dilemma. It's the desire to follow God, but the inability to do so. It's the, it's the want to follow God's ways, but the reality being we follow our own. It's not God's will, but our will that wins out, right? See, there is only one person who's ever switched this sentence up in their life in both word and action. There's only one person who's ever done that, and that's Jesus. You see, the whole problem described in the statement is a serious one, right? I proved that for you. I hope, uh, at least today. Again, we talked about the Edomites, but this pride stuff, it's a human-wide problem. Every single one of us in here, we deal with it. I mean, Obadiah gets at that in verse 15 to 17. He notes that judgment is coming, uh, not just for Edom, but for everyone. Yay. For all the nations, not just Edom, because pride is a problem for all the nations in their time and in ours today. The image is that God, that Obadiah provides, is that God has this cup of wrath. He's about to pour out to the nations for them to drink. And this is because we, as people like the Edomites, were prideful, like we've talked about. We, like them, often put ourselves in the place that God deserves to be. We consider ourselves to be superior to others, and our actions reflect this. And so, like I've said today, this is a big worldwide problem. It's a serious one, one that takes one that God takes so seriously that he actually sent his son to deal with it. You see, in Luke 22, 42, we get this moment with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, moments before he's going to be arrested, arrested beaten, and then crucified, right? You've probably heard the story. Um, he's praying to the Father, and he says this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus makes the honest ask. This is the human part of Jesus right? God, if you're willing, take, take this cup away from me. I don't want to deal with this. The cup that I just talked about, right, is that cup of wrath that's going to be poured into the nations. It's now going to be poured onto Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus, even though asking that there be another way, says this amazing thing, yet not my will, 
but yours be done. Jesus epitomizes humility here. He demonstrates the antithesis, the opposite of pride by laying down his life for others. It's incredible. While we were prideful sinners, Jesus died for us. I mean, take that in. He drank the cup that we were meant to drink, uh, though our pride brought death. Jesus' humility brings life. I mean, that's the gospel. That's it. And so for those of you today who maybe feel the the weight and the conviction of the sin of pride in your life, I know, I get it. You can know that because of Jesus' humility, because he considered himself a servant to us, because he went and died on a cross for us, that you can find forgiveness for that pride and everything that stems from it. For those of you who have made yourselves to be high, know that you have a savior who brought himself low. The Bible says that we receive this forgiveness by faith by trusting in him. And when you do, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit actually comes to dwell inside you. And his whole purpose, his whole desire is to make you like Jesus. It's to make you gentle and humble in heart, like your savior. And so although the problem of pride is a big one, I get it, it is. The answer is found in not trying harder or doing more, but in asking the spirit to change your heart to humble you, and to make you more and more like Jesus. And I wish I had time to keep going and talking about that, but I definitely don't. But let me encourage you, even if you fully don't get it yet, the worship team comes up, and actually I'm going to invite you guys to come up now anyways if that works, because uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take a moment of communion in a sec. But even if you fully don't get it, um, while the worship team's playing, while we're doing communion, ask the Spirit today while the worship team sings to come and, and to humble you to come and to make you more like Jesus. Pride is a big problem in our own power, but it's not in his. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take uh, of the, the bread and the wine together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to uh, gather together. Thank you um, for the chance to read the, to be honest, Jesus, not so easy book of Obadiah. Um, there's lots in there that's kind of hard to read, that's kind of hard to figure out, Jesus, but we know um, that your word is good. No matter what it says, Jesus, we trust you in that. And so um, we trust you with even tough messages like this about the pride that's in our lives, Jesus. Um, Father, uh, we thank you for the fact that uh, you sent your son to die for us, that you didn't leave us where we were in our pride and in our selfishness. No, Jesus, you let go of everything, uh, not considering equality be, uh, with, with, uh, with the Father to be something that is grasped, Jesus. You let go of that to come here for us. It's incredible. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we, uh, yeah, in this moment, come uh, to the table. We look forward to it, Jesus. In your son's name, Lord, amen.